This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Today I'm hoping I can keep you warm on Backstory and today I'm not alone. I'll be teaming up with a very familiar voice, uh, Jared Elson, writer, bookseller and my co-host over the summer is uh, joining me for a special show focusing on the work of Marie Dariusek, uh, a French Basque author of many books her latest uh, dystopian novella our life in the forest jared hi mel back thank you <laughs> i it's think so nice to be back in the triple r studio sitting sitting opposite you <laughs> again at lunchtime on a wednesday absolutely absolutely and both of us have had quite nasty colds you're you're sounding really good today though you're really? in quite fine voice i still feel like i'm still a little a little phlegmy a little phlegmy. A little sinusy. Uh, enough to kind of give you that sort of like gravelly sort of winter. Oh, I should, I should be talking down here a bit more. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, I think okay. we'd enjoy that a lot more. Um, so, look, I before we ease into this conversation, um, let's talk a little bit about who um, Marie Dariusek is. Uh, she is often referred to as a French author, but that's not how she refers to herself. Uh, she's actually from the French Basque country, which I think a lot of people know about the, the Spanish Basque and obviously very famously Etta, um, you know, was uh, had this struggle, was known as a terrorist organisation. Um, now in, in, the, in the Spanish side of things, um, Basque is largely spoken, but it's very different in France. Can you talk a little bit about um, who this wonderful author is and what her relationship with the Basque country is all about. Yeah, of course. I guess I should um, preface by saying that you've invited me here today to chat with you about Marie Dariusek because uh, I interviewed her a couple of years ago for Kill Your Darlings and um, she was one of the most fascinating interviewees I I had while I was uh, at KYD back then. And um, she... She's interesting uh, in in a great many ways, but uh, I suppose in terms of how she she identifies herself, um, she spoke with me back then about the fact that she was raised between three languages uh, in in French Basque country. Uh, So French, obviously, uh, the native Basque tongue and also Spanish. So uh, from a very early age, she says that she um, got a sense of language as being something that um, was able to be played with. It wasn't... um, you know, she, she sort of says how the, the French are very good at sort of thinking that the French language is something that's quite sacrosanct and um, is kind of unable to be, to be doctored or, or toyed about with in, in any sort of fashion. But, um, yeah, from, from really early on, she, she became quite playful with language and um, always sort of felt a little bit at a remove from the French culture because, um, yeah, she was, you know, very close to the Spanish border in the, the little town of Bayonne where she, she grew up. Um, or near Bay- near Bayonne, I think actually more more precisely. Um, and yeah, so sh- she's um, someone who has committed herself, I think, throughout most of her work, at least her work, which has been um, translated into English. Which is, I've lost count now, nine or ten books, mm. I think, uh, all novels except for one, uh, a biography, which was published last year of the German painter Paula Modersen Becker. Uh, but um, yeah, an ongoing kind of concern of hers, I guess, has been. Um, kind of rendering the world anew through language, through fresh perspectives. And she's a writer who's always very willing to sort of um, forego kind of typical elegance of 
phrasing or expression, I think, in order to really implant you firmly in the, the subjectivities of her, of her characters and her narrators. She can also be an extremely, like, exquisitely elegant writer when she wishes to be. It's really interesting because the French relationship with, you know, with language is, is such a fraught one. And I remember the author, Laurent Benet, who came out for the Writers Festival a few years ago. He's a, um, very famously the author of a book called HHHH. Um, and he was sort of questioned about this, about, you know, how the French kind of dominance has worked and how it's kind of subsumed other language groups mm. and that that fight has really been stamped out. And I think it is one of those things that by its very suppression must bubble up of in course, French and literature. And reading it in translation, maybe we don't, you know, yeah. really get a sense of that. And I guess specifically speaking back to, to the Basque country and the Basque language and the Basque culture, um, yeah, Marie sort of said that when she, I mean, when her mother was young, she was forbidden from speaking Basque at school. Um, when Marie was kind of growing up, uh, she says that it was sort of unfashionable really, or like there wasn't much of the Basque culture still around. It had been kind of suppressed, but maybe perhaps it wasn't being as actively suppressed as, as it had been during her mother's youth. Whereas today there has been a real kind of revitalization and revival of that culture and that language. And that's something which, you know, obviously, as you say, kind of has to happen in time. I mean, similar things have happened in Wales with Welsh, you know, with the Welsh language. And um, yeah, all around the world, I think there has been this big, um, you know, in recent times, a a process of um, kind of revivifying um, languages which have been suppressed by colonial culture, Mm. uh, by colonial domination and... It's sort of a really interesting one, isn't it? Because the French in different places, like in Canada, for example, have sort of placed themselves in the, they, you know, they, I guess, were the, in the position of the slightly oppressed, yeah. if anything. But that, um, the way the academy works in France and, and the, you know, assertion of a dominant culture, which is supposed to be about equality, but really is about a hegemonic culture and, um, you know, really having a, a homogenized culture, mm. uh, which means that, that no other groups are allowed to sort of really spring up. It's, it's quite worrying because we've always had this multiculturalism, well, always, <laughs> um, since, uh, since we moved away from the white Australia policy, Australia embraced allegedly uh, a multiculturalist policy. But I think there's some tides that, that want to push us more towards the French model. And mm. looking at things like this is really interesting. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. If you've been listening earlier, um, you will have heard um, myself, Melissa Cranenberg, and uh, Jared Elson discussing the wonderful French Basque author Marie Dariusek. And we will be continuing to do so in this uh, special uh, edition of Backstory um, with you until one o'clock today. Um, So we are actually going to be hearing an interview with Marie later on in the hour, but Jared, um, I really do want to talk a bit more with you about um, about Marie's broader work, and she has been writing for quite a while now, and was quite famous in her youth as well. Um, but one of the things that you've sort of really noticed in her work is this connection with Australia, and. I was. Um, we were just discussing that maybe that's got a lot to do with the, the country she grew up in, this kind of wild Basque country, which is sort of seaside. Um, I've actually been lucky enough to go there and even the drive over kind of reminded me of the sort of, you know, wilder sort of um, parts of, of Canada, I guess, even. Um, but then, you know, the seaside side of things is something that a lot of Australians, I guess, would be familiar with. What have you kind of found emerging in her work that you think has got a strong Australian connection? Uh, yeah, well, 
I mean, most obviously, her novel Tom is Dead is set in Sydney in the Blue Mountains, and that's a, a really wrenching and uh, intense novel about maternal grief. Uh, about a, a woman and her partner who lose a four-and-a-half-year-old child uh, after moving to, to Sydney uh, for the husband's work. Um, but Australia kind of shows up in, in a lot of her books. It's mentioned, you know, there's a little mention of, of Australia and our life in the forest. Um, her novel, A Brief Stay with the Living, uh, I'm, I'm fairly confident in this book, um, is uh, there's a, a bit of like the platypus kind of features in that book in, in some way. Um, yeah, most of her novels, there'll be some sort of little nod or reference to Australia. And um, I know she's, she's um, spoken about how um, in, when she was growing up in, in the French Basque country, uh, she had this sense that there was no, no culture whatsoever there, apart from the, the traditional Basque culture, which again was being sort of, if not actively suppressed at that time, was, was not really much of a presence. And um, so she's like, all we had was, was surfing and, and rugby. And uh, as someone who grew up on the south coast of New South Wales, that sounds pretty familiar. <laughs> um, and she even told me about, you know, being teenagers uh, in the 80s, you know, surfing down there, listening to the go-betweens, which I found pretty delightful, actually. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that's really great. Um, I do want to kind of give people a little bit more of a taste of the language use in, in Darisek's work. Uh, she's quite a concise writer in some ways, or quite a sharp writer. They're really, um, you know, not a, a lot of wasted words, mm. I guess, in her work. Um, but having said that, she does really manage to, you know, kind of tap into this um this sense of what is going on you know you're in a you don't realize that you're in a familiar scene at first in some of her works um you describe this really beautifully i'd love you to talk about some of how this yeah works. well i think that's especially true of her earlier books um, which I, we should probably mention we haven't mentioned pigtails which is her very first novel and that's the novel that made her name and was fairly scandalous when it was first uh published in in french in 1996 when uh, Marie was about 27 or so, I think. Uh, and that's a book about a very beautiful young masseuse who literally metamorphoses into a sow uh, while working in a, quote, massage parlour, unquote. Um, but, yeah, so from there, she's... Um, her next book was called My Phantom Husband. That was uh, about a woman's kind of collapse into delirium after her husband goes out for a loaf of bread and never returns. And um, that's where she really started doing what we've what you've just described i think is this sense of um yeah like very very estranging uh i think is like her novels can be very very estranging they can write about very very familiar things in this intense precise way where as you say it's a little opaque as to what exactly is being described um her novel breathing underwater actually starts with a, a passage like that which i guess is a bit indicative of um this effect in her work and um yeah, if you'd like, I can read a, a little part of that yeah, to, to give you a sense. So I won't say whose perspective we're, we're coming at this from or even what's being described. It's a, mouth, it's a mouth half open, breathing, but the eyes, nose and chin are no longer there. It's a mouth bigger than any mouth imaginable, rending space in two, expanding it so that you have to swivel your body in a semicircle to try seeing it all. The noise, the breathing, is tremendous, but above all, it's that you don't expect it. You climb up the dune, you struggle to drag your feet up the slope. For a while, all you're concerned with is this suction beneath the sand, and suddenly space explodes and you've looked up and the top of the dune has fallen away far below you, something like two colossal arms opening wide. But it's not that exactly. It's not welcoming. It's rather that you have no choice, the way you'd fall off a building or a monument without a guardrail. It's hard to visualise the edge of this thing, hard to decide precisely where it is, how far away. Before you were climbing the dune... 
already hearing the noise but not yet feeling anything on your face, leaning into the sand, in the cold, dry smell of the sand, and then the noise grows, seeming to spread out even behind your head, a 360-degree noise, although the sea is straight ahead, blowing in your face, evaporating the sweatiness of the uphill climb with a raspy breath, salty but not humid, dried by the still-scorching expanse of the beach. So that's a very young girl's first ever glimpse of the sea. It's amazing, isn't it? Because you don't quite know what's going on at first. Yeah, and again, in, in her earlier books, there's a great many passages about this um, where yeah, very familiar things are made alien and or you know we're forced to really kind of attend to the language that's being used to describe this thing in an attempt to, to visualize something which of course when the penny drops is uh, hugely familiar to the reader she's doing this in a slightly different way in her latest book which is actually a novella it's uh, really quite short and easy to read and I, I recommend it for that reason as well in our time for <laughs> age which is kind of ironic given the subject matter um uh, let's let's have a little bit of a chat about that, but um, but we do have um, something quite special coming up. Um, Marie's latest book, Our Life in the Forest, is set in the perhaps not too distant future, but deals with very contemporary concerns. I've been describing it um, as a kind of long subtweet to the internet age um, and the dawning technocratic era. How would you describe it, Jared? I think that's a very a very good summary, Mel. Um, also, too, there is, you know, the book is written as a kind of a, a final testament from someone. Um, so there's, there's that component to it, too. It's, um, yeah, a rushed, dashed-off kind of diary entry to the future, basically. Um, yeah, but I think a subtweet to the internet age is, is pretty good. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of humour in it and a lot of, a lot of darkness. But uh, Jared and I managed to catch Marie on the phone from Basket Country last week. The sound quality isn't the finest, I have to admit, but... Um, but, Nor uh, was I the finest. I was pretty sick. <laughs> I think I think we, we <laughs> definitely were lucky to be able to catch her. And um, yes, I asked her where the book came from. Oh, it came from my body. I think, like uh, like all of my novels, uh, I'm I'm interested in, in how high technology affects our organs, our body, our very flesh, and the, the intrication between this very high level of, uh, yes, of technology and the fact that we still have the same body from, you know, sapiens sapiens, from prehistorical times. So um, I think there's a gap here uh, that's hard to cope with. Uh, and, and our minds, our unconsciousness, more precisely, is very late on, on what's happening to us uh, in our now everyday lives. Yeah, to really ground this book as well, it's a story that follows Marie and her half, not referred to as other half, yeah. although I have to say uh, I'm sure that the intention was there to give the illusion that that was also a part of it uh, from the beginning. But this is really one of those books that follows along and as you listen to the narrator, you start to get more detail about the world that she's dropped into, as in she is, you start to suspect, maybe not what she appears to be at first, uh, this other half, this mysterious half that is kept in a uh -huh. facility, is always asleep but is a complete replica of her, uh, is used to kind of replace parts as they become necessary, which is happening very, very often, alarmingly often. It's also a world where yeah. people seem to die very young and under mysterious circumstances, where technology is always watching in this very kind of Orwellian sense. Um, in With, you know, malicious intent, you start to really get, get a sense of that. Humans, you know, do feel like a kind of sheep but a sort of almost data sheep 
in this world. So it's a really interesting setup that you've given. And I want to know a little bit about uh, some of the themes that you're trying to wind in here. One in particular that uh, struck both Jared and, and myself was one about the notion of history and how that is sort of reflected by this author. Uh, the author's constantly making asides about things that we think of as pretty common knowledge, things about well-known historical events uh, that we would think yeah. about or um, things like the Mona Lisa explaining what that is, for example, as opposed to uh-huh. things that have happened more recently. So can you talk a little bit about the role of memory in this book? Um, the, the woman who speaks was a psychologist. She was trying to mend the broken mind of other people. And what was interesting and, and sometimes funny for me as a writer was that this mender, this woman who tries to, to help other people, is badly wounded herself, is, needs to be mended herself. And it's a world where, where uh, human beings are like machines that do not work very well and their memory is uh, badly wounded too and so she has to explain the merest facts to to the people who read her and it means her world but also us and i'm um, i'm very uh, interested i like very much because i think it's fun to write uh, with characters who do not know exactly what is happening to them in a very blurry, mysterious world, but the readers know more than they do. The readers, uh, little by little, understand what's happening to her, but she doesn't. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the master of this technique was Nabokov, you know, the, when he writes Lolita, everybody knows he's an awful monster, pedophile, but he doesn't know it himself. So, so I, I like to, to build this sort of um, a candid, even if sometimes bad, but candid characters, naive characters who don't understand exactly what's happening, but the reader does. And it, it's, it creates a, a gap ironical gap between the horror of the world where she is, uh, to speak uh, uh, simply, she's surrounded by clones and maybe she's a clone herself and she's surrounded by drones and robots and a global uh, surveillance, a global watching. But she's not exactly aware of what's happening. And I think the reader, it's a very short book, very tense, very nervous book. But I think the reader understands faster than she does. And that's what interesting for me. And in that sense it's quite reminiscent, probably more than any of your books uh, since Pigtails, of Pigtails, which uh, we should say for Triple R listeners who may not be familiar with that book, because it was some time ago now that it was uh, initially published. Um, that was that was that book caused quite a, a stir in its day, Marie, for you, and um, it's, mm-hmm. it's probably mm-hmm. your only book, am I right in saying this, certainly the only one that I've read in English translation, uh, which does kind of, is a, a fully sort of realised um, speculative fantastical kind of book um so the new book our life in the forest is sort of a return to to that kind of world that kind of novel and that kind of device as a means for um sort of passing commentary on on the present moment what um what kind of drew you back to to the speculative the fantastical uh at this point in your career um perhaps i was bored with with reality i was uh i mean with uh our reality now, because I think this novel, Our Life in the Forest, equally than Pigtails, they are novels that 
speak about a very, very close future. Uh, do you have the word imminent in, in English? Yes. Imminent future. I like, I like the, the idea that I try to write imminent literature, not science fiction, not dystopia, but imminent uh, literature. And it's, it's about to happen. It's, I mean, in 10 years. Uh, when you go to China, this level of, of watching, of uh, surveillance, surveillance, you say, is it, really now. You know, you have cameras everywhere, you, you, get, you have facial recognition, etc. So it's not science fiction, it's really now. And I, I like to write in this very, very short gap of time. Um, it, it's about to happen. And I, that's why I need this form of very short, nervous uh, novels. Absolutely, and I think this bears a lot of resemblance in many ways to that kind of very near future dystopian idea that comes up in Black Mirror, which you sort of, you know, oh, yes. see. My, my, absolutely. My yeah. teenagers, my kids who are teenagers, talk to me about Black Mirror. I didn't watch it, but apparently, yes, they love it. I think you're very plugged into the zeitgeist with that one, 100%. <laughs> I have to say it's really interesting that you mentioned boredom because that is one of the themes that I actually I chuckled out loud when I read the character's meditation on on boredom and just how how awful it is and how much you know you you need to avoid it because really boredom is one of those things that when we're constantly stimulated we lose but it's a really important element when it comes to engaging with our subconscious generating ideas you know really emotional processing exactly uh, all the things that are are really lacking in this world in where people are in a constant present can you talk about that about the loss of boredom the death of boredom in the context of this book I, I'm so interested with boredom that I may write uh, an essay sometimes about boredom. I, I think boredom is the very matter of writing. You absolutely need to be bored for for being a writer. And actually, when you write, uh, I write every morning. In between sentences, the level of my boredom is extraordinary. Not not in the writing itself. When I write a sentence, it's, it's almost sometimes it's a bit ecstatic. But when I fall down. And when I have to write the next sentence, I feel so bored. I have to, you know, uh, forbid myself to go on Google News, blah, blah, blah. Sometimes I, 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 it's better to write without, uh, you know, internet connection, of course. But we, of course, we don't know how to get bored any, any, anymore. We phone, we text, we, we watch the, the, the news, etc. And uh, I, writing is, um, is like meditating. You really need to be outside the world in a way to be better connected with the world but connected with your own wires with your own flesh with your own mind with your own senses and i think my my character's novel is absolutely talking about that about how to reconnect her body to herself about how to honor her own body and our own mind that's what's happening to us every day it's it's um um, it, 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 we, we are stuck between panic and boredom, something like that. It's really interesting because the metaphor of having a half, a literal double of you that's kept somewhere, you know, to be used to re- repair you for parts, but actually as you get deeper into the novel you realise that both the, the half that walks around and the half that's, that's kept somewhere else are really in some ways interchangeable is really that essence of us being completely separated from the fleshiness of us, from, you know, us being separated from our bodies, if you like. And I really felt that very strongly as a tide throughout this book that, 
you know, no matter how kind of, I suppose, in need of repair our bodies might be, it is crucial for us to be engaging with them in order to truly live or to have a sense of, of consciousness. Can you talk about about that and how that's wound throughout this book? Um, there's also a love story, uh, quite unexpected, between her and one of her patients, since she's a psychoanalyst or a psychotherapist. And love uh, is something uh, that is not supposed to happen in, the wor- in this world, actually, because the bodies are programmed to be kept in a certain way and certainly not in contact or only for sex. But or even reproduction seems to be something um, completely um, uh, mechanizable, uh, made by machines or, or programmed uh, at the minimum. So love in this context was interesting. It's um, a lot of people in France, of course, mentioned Orwell and uh, 1940, 1984 for this book, etc. But yes, the, the love story in, in 19, um, help me, 1984 uh, is also. The, the only breach for freedom, in a way. It's, it looks like a very romantic concept, but I think it's really, really true, even if it, in the end, perhaps it will be destroyed. But uh, yes, what is happening to, to the bodies in, in this context? And, um, and the fact that her half uh, I, I think we can say she's her clone because uh, it, it, I think people soon understand it, um, is, is not... Uh, even the clone doesn't function very well. Uh, it's. Uh, I, I hope it's also a funny book. It is. Actually, it's a very funny book. It's hilarious. Um, it's very, you. very wry and, and lots of kind of uh, you know cynical humour going on in there. I have to say. You uh, you mentioned. Well, thank you. <laughs> you mentioned that Orwell has Pardon? been um, brought up quite a lot in um, the the reviews in France uh, where it's already been published. But um, I was wondering uh, how much of uh, a Russian influence there was on this book. You have a, a quote from the poet Sergei oh, yeah. Yezinin up front, but reading it, it really reminded me of books by authors whom I really love, like Bulgakov and uh, Chapek. And uh, there's a great sort of grotesque and quite like bodily, uh, visceral, satirical tradition uh, in, in Russian literature. Uh, I wonder if, uh, if that's something which was really, um, that came to bear on the writing of, of this book. Well, yes, thank you for raising the, the Russian influence. Um, I was more thinking about Zamyatina, uh, translated by us in France. It's a novel from uh, 1921, just before the, the uh, well, in 1921, uh, there was a hunger and a disaster, but the revolution was still full of hope in Russia. And Zamyatin wrote this book about um, a completely transparent city where everybody watches everybody else, but there is a forest where maybe you can escape. And uh, and uh, the forest, and I'm talking to Australian people, is both the place of uh, refugees and the place of lost. And uh, I mean, actually, when I wrote the book, I was thinking about some places outside Sydney where the bush is, is not very high, but it's very... Um, it's a source of anxiety. You, you, you understand how you can really get absolutely lost there, but also how you can perhaps escape. And I, I had images of forest like that. The forest is really one of the major characters of the book. Yeah, there's also uh, a really wonderful uh, moment in this book where, you know, I guess the growing sort of relationship between the central character, Marie, and her patient, in inverted commas, clicker, the clicker, uh, as he's known throughout the book, um, where she talks about he 
you know, the fact that he introduces her to silence. And I thought that was an interesting corollary with boredom because this notion that we are in a time of constant chatter, even now, you know, we're always engaged with something, we're always talking in some form, whether it be text form or another, um, or we're listening to something. But the notion of, of, of... Silence being a powerful tool, I uh-huh. thought was really interesting because we quite often think about people not having a voice being one of those tools of oppression, but having a constant voice being a tool of oppression yeah. was an interesting take on it. Can you talk a little bit about that as well? Yes, silence uh, also being a, a great, uh, an important part of writing. I always write in silence. So in, in many ways, uh, perhaps for me, the book was also a metaphor of it's bizarre, but of, of writing. Uh, but also the clicker introduces her to animals. Uh, there are not many animals left in this world uh, of the book, but they are dogs and pigeons, and they play a role in, the, in really freedom. And because they are bearers of messages, silent messages, little notes written on papers uh, that they carry. And, um, and the animals, the body of the animals and the eyes of the animals, the fact that other creatures look at the world with their own eyes um, is something that in a way she discovers and she follows them, she trusts them. I'm not talking about uh, uh, stupid sentimentality about animals, but the fact that they are truly um, minds looking at the world. I'm very mm, aware of that. And uh, and, uh, the fact that they lead them to the forest brings us back to something archaic, an archaic memory of who we were in the forest uh, without uh, any technology except fire and stones. And I think there's some a reminiscence of that in the book. Uh, when the technology gets too high and, and escapes us, um, perhaps something archaic can, I don't know, it's, very, it's more Romanesque than scientific, of course, what I'm telling now. More, it's about poetry, of course. But, I, you know, when, when they talk, uh, because they are watched and heard all the time, even in the sessions, which is a scandal. I mean, I was a psychotherapist, so, so it's the very place of secret. Nobody has to listen, you know, except the patient and the shrink. Um, but the fact that they understand that they have to speak in images, they speak in metaphors, because the robots that are listening cannot understand metaphors. Uh, they cannot understand a certain... Uh, way of speaking to they cannot understand poetry and i was amazed when i was writing the book that this old cliche that poetry you know will save the world in a way it's true because you if you speak in a in a poetic way uh, a robot will not understand for the moment if you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on 3RRR. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm with my guest co-host, uh, Jared Elson, talking to the author Maria Dariusek about her wonderful book, Our Life in the Forest, uh, speaking all the way from the French uh, Basque country. So, Marie, thank you so much for that. Um, just to pick up again on some of the things uh, that we were discussing, you know, the central character in this book is obviously a psychologist or uh, who is, you know, supposedly helping patients, although she herself uh, has major issues. Everyone can obviously uh-huh. see that from the very first page. But trauma is also wound into this book and, and the idea of trauma, uh, you know, how it's processed by people and the lack of understanding that the kind of robotic overlords have of 
the importance and both the, the devastating nature of trauma when it affects humans. There's a lot of little elements throughout this book uh, where you do kind of talk about this and, you know, I guess one of the, the moments that I found the most touching was when, you know, you were looking at it as a logic trap that actually, you know, the, the robots thought it was better to not think about bad things, to actually uh, to think about good things because that meant that you were fine and everything uh-huh. was good, but actually you need to delve into the darkness to really be able to kind of process some of these things. Do you want to talk a bit about how that's kind of cropped up here? The book was written after the attacks in Paris in uh, 2015, and I live in Paris, and we it was... Uh, it was here and now, you know. It was the uh, uh, the city itself was in trauma, I think, and um, and I was um, very interested, if I can say, uh, about the the how uh, psychologists and colleagues of mine tried to to mend uh, the broken minds of uh, the people who survived the attacks, especially in the Bataclan, in the, in the concert hall, and um, they they. It was almost a national talk. How can we help uh, these traumatized people? And how how do you do that? Do they really have to talk uh, now? You know, and is it uh, another violence to try to help them talk? Uh, is talk the best cure? You know, there was a um, a, a big. Uh, it, it was uh, full of goodwill. And sometimes uh, the results were not uh, good. So it was, um, I, I thought uh, it was sometimes very awkward, the, the way uh, basic psychology tried to help these people. Perhaps it was a, a new kind of, of trauma in a way. Uh, so this idea of a national cause, of a psychology as a help for trauma, it's some, certainly something that you can find in the book uh, through the bizarre ways of a, of a novelist. Mm. There is one character that's going through an extreme loss uh, that, that kind of, I guess, parallels what people would have gone through during the Paris attack or post the Paris attack. And I think at one stage she does say to her psychologist, what you think of as trauma is actually just an inconvenience or is just uncomfortable or something similar. And I thought that that rang really true. Yeah. Uh, what I can say is that trauma is not a national thing. It's a very singular, individual thing. People, each people lives it in his own or her own way. Um, I, there was this fantastic movie made after the, the attack, Flickstradnik uh, Mergitur. It's the it's the motto of Paris. You know, it it, it rocks. It, it's it's rocked by the waves, but it still uh, floats. Uh, and, and the movie uh, is in uh, three parts and uh, there are at least a dozen of survivors and uh, and one woman said uh, oh i'm not going to get killed by somebody who wears um, a sports trouser uh, in, in the daylight how do uh, you know sports trouser i'm joking as we say it was it was not chic it was not elegant and she's so funny and she's so extremely parisian and i, I loved her and and um, and there's something. Uh, these very um, individual reactions are wonderful. You know, it's about the magic of of the human mind. And I I hoped in my novel, even if it's not directly connected to the events, I hope I could um, uh, have the reader understand how we are absolutely irreducible to any scheme. You know, to any uh, frame. And uh, that's called freedom, absolute freedom. 
I, I was interested as well in this uh, motif of face blindness that the character develops so that she realises that she's... I mean, probably, I guess it's framed as a legacy of spending time with her half and in a, a kind of situation where many people are paired with their, you know, obvious doubles, that she stops being able to, to kind of differentiate between faces. And I was starting to think, is this one of those weird kind of matrixy moments where she's she's seeing through things where actually, um, you know, maybe there are just a lot of duplicates on the street. Similarly, with the use of deja vu, um, and these kinds of elements. You're sort of playing with us all throughout the novel, aren't you? Um, yes, I'm... I, the clone is a, a, an infinite source of inspiration for novelists. It, it, you know, it dates back from uh, from the beginning of 20th century. Uh, the the idea of the double of the doppelganger, uh, even the the mere idea of the double is something that dates well, at least from the Middle Ages. Uh, who are we if we meet our double, and uh, how can I recognize who I am if I have a double, or even as we soon see in the book, a triple or quadruple, or I don't know how to say in English, but many people that absolutely look like me. And um, it's, uh, I, I was, um, the book is short, so I, I, I didn't uh, give implications to all the threats in the book, but what was the most um, exciting for me as a novelist is that when you rise uh, those clones who are sleeping because it's the best way to take their organs out of them, basically, uh, when, you, uh, when this sort of army of liberation uh, who lives in the forest um, gets into the, the centers where they sleep and, uh, and wants to, to free them, to rise them, to wake them up. In fact, they are very disappointing, the clones, because they, are, they have nothing in their mind. They are empty, and all they want to do, they, they don't want to join a, an army of liberation. They want to drink, to eat, to have sex, to have fun. And they are very, very bad uh, political act activists. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, all this—it's a—it's a mess. This this uh, this army of liberation is an absolutely mess, and um, and all this, and also they are they are catched up by their own uh, bad uh, instincts. Uh, they even when they fall into parts, the 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 freedom fighters, they start thinking that perhaps it would be a good idea to take fresh organs from the the the, the clones themselves. So nobody is really good and bad. It's it's complex. Absolutely. I did feel there was a slightly hopeful message here, though, which was this sense of if you pay attention, there are, you know, you can overcome some of these sort of excesses of how we're controlled by technology versus the other way around, that once people have stopped being drugged in a way that I won't reveal because it does give away one of the plot points, uh, but once mm -hmm. they've sort of, you know, able to harness uh, the way uh, that they think and use the mind that they can actually overcome any programming. And I thought that was really interesting. It also sort of really sets into sharp relief exactly uh, how little thought is going on when it comes to the clones when they're released, the fact that they're just in the joyous present, which is, it's weird, isn't it? Because that's something that we're always told to do is to, to be in the present in order to not, um, you know, not have anxiety. And I thought that that was a really wonderful thing that you chose to employ here, that actually those that are living in the perpetual present have those that have drunk the Kool-Aid, if you like. Yes, if you still have a memory, uh, if you if you are still in a world where memory is kept outside than in the machines, uh, it's. Uh 
um, perhaps some someday the access to the wonderful huge memory of the internet will only well will will be blocked for a big part of the population. I don't know, uh, and we will have to rely on our own little memory. Also, that it's a world where um, if you like to to be in a present state of mind and a sort of meditation, if you like to make the most of the present moment, etc. Yes, but if there are no birds left in the sky, if you cannot listen to a, a clean river rolling around, if you, if the world is absolutely destroyed, you know, what, what will you meditate about, you know? So I'm not sure the book is really... Um, there's not much hope in the book. In fact, it's, it's, there's a lot of dark, a lot of dark humor, but also I'm not very hopeful myself. You know, it's um, now here at the moment. I'm speaking to you in the Basque country, in the countryside, and yes, as you all know, there are less and less insects. I cannot hear the frogs anymore. Mm. It's it's a disaster, you know. It's hard to be optimistic now, really. Yeah. Where do you see this book going beyond the boundaries of the page? What where do you see these characters travelling once we leave them? Ah, she's in a bad position. I think it's a testimony, a testament. Uh, she, she's she's giving her last words before she dies, I think. Yeah, she's a, there's something very Beckettian. I thought about Beckett when I wrote the novel uh, for his dark humor also, but uh, for his uh, perception, his uh, prescience of what was going to happen to humankind, in fact, in a very, also very metaphorical way. Um, where are they going? For the moment, they are going in a movie, which I'm very happy about. Uh, a French movie and uh, with a, um, a woman director, and we are talking about the landscapes. She she already did a movie with a forest, uh, a sort of post-apocalypse forest, uh, and she she she's very interesting in building uh, another. Uh, image of a forest, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very, I'm, I'm looking forward to see my characters in this forest. It's, it's going to be magical for me. Mm. I do want to recommend our life in the forest. There's a lot in here, and those who think that uh, that humankind managed to escape without dealing with climate change, they certainly didn't. In this novel, you have much, uh, many references to sea levels rising and sea walls and things of that nature just beyond the boundaries of what we're seeing. The environment is devastated. All sorts of things have gone on. It's pretty dark, but it is actually hilarious. Uh, Marie uh, Dariusek, thank, thank you. you so much uh, for joining us on Backstory. Three triple R. I'm still very lucky to be joined today by uh, Jared Elson, author, bookseller, uh, my former co-host over the summer on this very slot. Uh, and Jared, we have been talking quite a lot about this author, Marie Dariusek, uh, and her book, but I'd like to shift gears a little bit. Um, for this coming Saturday uh, is, in fact, uh, the Love Your Bookstore, Love Your Bookshop Day, I should say, and bookshops around the country will be celebrating with everything ranging from blind dates with books to artists in residence, story and song times and spontaneous craft happenings. Um, you are, in fact, uh, a wonderful um, bookseller in residence, Jared. You work at Readings in St Kilda, which is a bookstore that I love. Why are bricks and mortar bookstores still so important to so many people, do you think? 
Um, I think one big reason, of course, is the element of serendipity that comes from actually just wandering into a bookstore and sort of luxuriously browsing the shelves, which, um, you know, online book buying has little algorithms to tell you if you liked the subtle art of not giving a fuck, then you absolutely <laughs> need to buy the Barefoot Investor or something like that. But uh, it's just not quite the same, I think, as, as going in and sort of letting it all kind of wash over you and plucking something interesting off the shelves, which you would otherwise probably never encounter, you know, like online buying very often uh, involves you having to go there with a, an express purpose. You know, you have to have a particular title that you're looking for, plug that in. You might get a few related things showing up, uh, which I guess this is a, a kind of long-winded way of saying the human touch as well, you know, your friendly booksellers <laughs> quite who are literally, there. Quite literally, um, you know, in a consensual way. <laughs> um, yeah, look, it's, uh, I think as well, you know, if you mention to booksellers the words Amazon, uh, people get very worried looking. They'll um, hiss at you. They will hiss. Um, and I think in some ways, look, the disruption of the book industry by obviously um, book dispensary and Amazon and similar players in the market has been significant. But I like to think back to that time when boarders thought that they could just drop a borders across the road from readings. Wasn't and that great? Wasn't that a, <laughs> such a satisfying thing to witness? <laughs> well, it's it just shows you, um, you know, things like playing with cost is not necessarily the value that people place on things um, that actually, you know, those kind of community values um, that people hold dear of, of having a place to go to where, where like minds can physically meet. Is that the sort of thing that you, you sort of feel is, is still very much a part of your participation in book selling? It's also obviously your livelihood uh, as, a, as a writer, mm. um, a supplementary livelihood. No, no, absolutely livelihood. Um, and no, of course, you know, it's, I've, I've been in that job for eight years now. Um, as of last month, I realised. So it's, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing that keeps you somewhere, I think, is the, the surrounding culture, you know, both uh, in terms of your colleagues and the incredible wealth of knowledge that, um, that they bring and that I benefit from every day when I go to work, uh, but also the customers and the surrounding community. And um, yeah, it is, it's, a really, it's a really lovely place to spend the vast majority of my time. So Jared will be, as many other book shifters and sellers, uh, will be working, I believe, this coming Saturday. So go in and be nice to a bookseller uh, on that day. I'm sure many of the local independent stores will be doing things, um, but you can obviously, if you're over at the south side of Melbourne, pop into Reading St Kilda and see the wonderful Jared. Jared, thank you so much. Pleasure. I was going to say too, it's a really great time to be buying books this weekend. There's been so many great things released in the last kind of two months or so, including Marie's new book, but um, lots of things. So definitely get out and get to your favourite friendly neighbourhood bookstore. But thank you very much for having me, Mel. It's been really, really fun. It's been just absolutely great. Three. Triple. You've been listening to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and if you like what you've heard, you can listen to the live version of the show, Wednesdays at 12 on Triple R. Join the stream on the Triple R website, or subscribe to this podcast in your favourite podcatcher. Thanks for listening. Join me again soon. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.